It's time for the Tom Sumner Program. The Tom Sumner Program is a live variety show with music, comedy and special guest interviews every Monday through Friday. The Tom Sumner Program. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation. Our theme music is Fruit of the Louvre, provided by Flick composer-producer Howard Eddy. Stay tuned, because it's on now. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation. The Tom Sumner Programme. Have you lost your job and your health care coverage due to COVID-19? You're not alone, and Genesee Health Plan can help. I called, and they provided health care enrollment over the phone with Medicaid, HealthCare.gov, and Genesee Health Plan. They made sure I had access to doctor visits, my prescriptions, and more. Getting health care coverage can be confusing. You don't have to do it alone. Get help with GHP. Call 844-232-7740 or go to GeneseeHealthPlan.org. We're in this together, and together we'll get right through now, it. COVID-19 vaccines are available to millions of Americans and soon they will be available to everyone. This vaccine means hope. It will protect you and those you love from this dangerous and deadly disease. I want to go back to work and I want to be able to move around. To visit with Michelle's mom, to hug her and see her on her birthday. You know what I'm really looking forward to is going to opening day in Texas Ranger Stadium with a full stadium. We've lost enough people, and we've suffered enough damage. In order to get rid of this pandemic, it's important for our fellow citizens to get vaccinated. I'm getting vaccinated because we want this pandemic to end as soon as possible. So we urge you to get vaccinated when it's available to you. So roll up your sleeve and do your part. This is our shot. Now it's up to you. From Amari, Christian, Skyler, Caitlin, Nolade, Jordan, Antonio, Eddie, and the Tom Sumner Program. Hi, I'm U.S. Senator Debbie Stabenow, and I'm listening to the Tom Sumner Show. Hey, good morning, everybody. Welcome to the show. I'm Tom Sumner, and as always, we got a real good one uh, in store today. With uh, and and it's kind of jam packed. Um, I had a chance. Uh, of course, a lot of people have been seeing the news coming out of uh, Michigan with regard to um, that high school shooting in uh, Oxford, which um, happened on Tuesday, and is just down the road from where our show is based in Flint. And I had a chance to talk with uh, the director of training at Safe Defend to talk about um, how to prepare, um, how schools should plan and prepare for this kind of an event. And it's kind of timely, so I I thought I'd squeeze it into today's show. and it will appear in three parts throughout the show in the in the third segment of each hour. Uh, his name is Doug Parisi, and he's uh, kind of an expert on uh, 
preparedness for this kind of an event. So we'll have that going on in the show in the third half of our three-hour tour. We're going to talk with um, Olivia Swindler, who is the author of a book called Cynthia Starts a Band. In the uh, middle of our three-hour tour, the second hour, we're going to talk with uh, Nathaniel Sizemore about his uh, new fast-paced legal thriller, Deadly Division. But we start out this uh, morning with my uh, my first guest, who joins me by phone. He is the um, let me let me get this right. Founder and president of Mansfield Hall, an innovative residential college support program for diverse learners, and he has a book uh, with um, oh that talks about skills and information that students with disabilities will need to be successful in college. The book is called Taking Flight. My guest is called uh, Perry Larock, and he joins me by phone. Hi, Perry. Welcome to the show. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me. Um, Perry, let me, let me ask you about this. This this came up in a conversation uh, earlier this week. We were talking about there was a, a presidential candidate that says not everybody uh, necessarily has to go to college. There are other ways that people can prepare themselves for life. Um, is the process of determining who's who's ready for college any different for students with disabilities than for anyone else? Yeah, well, I, th- I think that's uh, it's an interesting question because um, I, I think it's the same process. The question starts with desire, and I think that that's where the split happens, right? I mean, a, a non-disabled student who has done fairly well in high school, if they have the desire to go to college, they have that opportunity. If you have a student with a disability um, who... Uh, has the desire to go to college, it may not always be the option. And if it is an option, um, they may not have the appropriate resources to actually be successful within it. Um, And so it comes down to more uh, about a question of, you know, is college a place where we're going to be accepting of all diverse learners or are we just going to try to have this narrow focus on, um, you know, more traditional students um, who are able to attend and be successful in college with limited accommodations and modifications to the program. Do colleges have to make adjustments to be accommodating? It's it's a it's an interesting question and the the answer is is yes, um but not very much. Um so when students are in high school, um they fall under um the Individuals with Disabilities Act. Um, and that, you know, governs how students with disabilities are, you know, their rights and how they're governed in um, K-12. Within that, we have some, you know, very clear rules about providing an appropriate education, about the amount of time, about how we discipline. As soon as a student graduates from that program, they fall under 504 and the American with, uh, with Disabilities Act, which was created generally more for businesses um, in places of work. Um, and basically what that law says is, is that if you're an individual with a disability, um, that your place of work or the college has to make reasonable accommodations. The difference with a college now is that once you've been accepted to that college, you're considered to be under those laws an otherwise qualified individual, which means that you are, you are accepted to that college based on their expectations 
And within those expectations, a college only needs to make reasonable accommodations or minor adjustments to their program. And so whereas in high school, if you can't pass, you know, foreign language, you might be able to get that, you know, uh, something to say, I don't have to take foreign language in high school. If you were accepted to a history program, let's say at a college, and part of that requirement was taking a foreign language course, um, you couldn't get an exception to, to not take that. Now, they might give you some extra time on tests or note-taking. Um, you know, you might be able to, um, you know, have different format. But at the end of the day, you have to meet those objectives. Otherwise, the college can say you're not a qualified individual to attend the college. And so that's, a, that's a really one of the biggest differences between, you know, sort of the, co the college experience and the high school experience. Perry, when we talk about students with disabilities, or as I see it in a, in a, a different place, uh, referred to as diverse learners, um, what are we really talking about? What kinds of things? Um, does it require adjustments in, in curriculum and in subject matter, or are we talking about just physical barriers to being present? Yeah, I think that uh, that's a great that's a great question, Tom. Um, so let me um, let me back up and say, you know, the book that I wrote, Taking Flight, um, the guide to college for diverse learners and non traditional students. I purposely chose the word diverse learner and non traditional students for a variety of reasons, and that is that not all disabilities are going to impact your learning, um, and there are a lot of people who don't have identified disabilities, um, and, and you probably know them or you, you yourself. There are some ways that you learn differently than others. Um, and, and I think that that is such a, a spectrum of different, um, you know, either disability or learning preferences or learning characteristics that it's hard to say that it's necessarily a disability. And so the diverse learner just suggests it allows you to self-identify a bit more, to say, yeah, I, I kind of identify as that self, uh, you know, that diverse learner, and maybe I have dyslexia or I'm a diverse learner because I'm a, um, someone who really has a hard time with math or I'm a diverse learner because I have really, you know, bad anxiety that impacts my ability to do testing. And the non-traditional student piece is, is a really, another really kind of broad catch-all for, you know, again, self-identification. Um, that could be foreign students. That could be students who are the first-generation college students who have no idea how to be successful in college. And so, the, the range is extremely broad. Now, to get back to, you know, sort of the nuts and bolts of your questions, um, the piece around um, what needs to be changed is, I'm going to argue, um, is that the way that we think about learning needs to change at the college level. Um, you know, right now, think about it as you go to a class, there's a set menu, they tell you what's on it, they stand in front of the room, and, and they give it to you, right? And so it's sort of like this service delivery model where I'm handing out my in, intellect and my handing out this material and it's the students jobs to absorb it and in some ways if colleges want to be more successful in dealing with a diverse population the focus needs to switch from what you're teaching to more about what the students are learning and I know that that sounds um, you know sort of like we're threading a needle there but it really is important for us to say okay it doesn't really matter um, how a student learns the material. It's just our job to help that student figure out how they can learn the material. So in my book, you know, what I do is I address the student. I address the college student and say, here's what you need to think about in order to consume the information given in your class because it's not going to always come in ways that you're going to be able to, to take it. Um, you know, if you're a student who 
um, let's just say, has some auditory processing issues. So they have a hard time listening to lecture and absorbing the information. Going to lecture on a daily basis, and this doesn't have to be a disability either. There's plenty of us that can't sit through a three-hour-long lecture and get anything from it. Um, but, you know, if you have that auditory processing um, disorder, you can't go to the end of the class and say, well, you know, I didn't learn anything because I, I have this auditory processing uh, issue, and so therefore I failed the course, and it's not my fault. At the college level, it's your job to figure out how else to learn the material. And so we, in the book, give students, you know, some methodology and strategies for thinking about their learning and how they empower, how we can empower their own learning and how they can think about going out and, um, and using that empowerment to figure out how to get around that learning characteristic or that, that disability in order to still, um, you know, get information from that course. No, that's, we're saying, hey, no one's going to do this for you at the college level, but it would also be nice if colleges started to think about it a little bit more and took some more responsibility um, for that student's learning. But we've got a long way to go there. Yeah, and I can't help wondering, Perry, how, how that would impact other students. Yeah, no, actually, you know, it's great. Uh, we did a, a really uh, awesome study. And, I, and you know, I've got to say, um, and, and this is uh, many years back, um, and there's been many more that have, have done some similar things, but the, this question of looking at students with disabilities in college, um, because I would say that this has been a relatively new um, you know, we've had your classic learning disabilities in, you know, ADHD, sort of the mild um, academic disabilities have been, have been in colleges over the past, you know, 20, 30 years um, with some limited amount of support. It's only been recently where we've seen a much, um, uh, you know, a much bigger move of people with autism spectrum disorders and other disabilities who need much more strategies and accommodations to be successful starting to attend college. And so it's sort of a new... Um, it's sort of a new revolution. In fact, we're even seeing, and I was responsible for creating some um, uh, programs where we're taking students who have intellectual disabilities um, to go to college. And now you can imagine a student with, let's say, Down syndrome. They're not going to be able to, uh, to um, be successful with earning a degree um, given their, their disability. However, the benefits from a college campus, let's, let's remember, it's not just the courses. It's the clubs. It's the social experiences. It's the vocational training. It's the counseling services. Um, it's the meal plans. I mean, it, it's the community that you're having access to. And so if a student with, let's say, go back to Down syndrome, has a desire to be a part of that community, and the college is able to provide them with services that can support them, um, I'm thinking about the Think College programs across the country, the College Steps program, um, some of the CLE programs. The, these are excellent opportunities for that student to really grow as an individual, even if they're not necessarily getting those academic experiences. And they might just be auditing courses and, and getting some interest out of them with a huge amount of success. So hey, the question Perry, is... Perry, I hate to interrupt, yeah. um, and, and I want to get back to that, but I have to take a break here. Can you stick around for a few minutes so we can talk some more? Yeah, Great. Yeah, my, no problem. My guest is uh, Perry LaRock. The book is Taking Flight, and we're taking a break. We're going to let our broadcast partner squeeze a few words in or do whatever they do when we go to break. If you're streaming us at TomSumnerProgram.com, we have some messages as well. Hello out there, everybody. It's me, Tigger. T-I-double-G-R. That spells Tigger. And don't forget to remember to listen to Tom Sumner Program on account of because he's so bouncy. <laughs> 
I'm Julie Lopez with Crime Stoppers. Have you ever wondered what to do if you have information about a crime or the whereabouts of a felony fugitive and you want the police to know but you need to remain anonymous? Well, here's what you can do. You can go to p3tips.com or download the mobile app. You can go to Crime Stoppers of Flint and Genesee County's Facebook page and click on the Leave an Anonymous Tip tab or you can call 1-800-422-JAIL. All methods are anonymous and if your help leads to a felony arrest, you may be eligible for a cash reward. Remember, your voice matters. Our lives have been turned upside down by COVID-19. When a vaccine becomes available, it's critical that all of us get it. What we do as individuals will impact everyone's health, including those who can't get the vaccine. We won't get through this unless everyone takes part. Now is the time to get up to date on all recommended vaccines for both kids and adults. Experts say it's more important than ever for everyone to get their flu vaccine this year. And if you're older, you should get both the flu and pneumonia vaccines, since both illnesses can make COVID-19 even worse. Vaccines are available at a lot of convenient places, so be an example for friends and loved ones and encourage them to get vaccinated too. We all want to reunite, travel, and get back to school and work. But that means we all need to get on board. This is the time to do what's right for each other. Get vaccinated. It's our best shot. Hey, this is Tom from the Tom Sumner Program. Catch me and a gaggle of great guests weekdays on Our Voices Radio, WFOVLP 92.1 FM. You never know who might drop by. Joe By from the Blue Hawaiian. Dan Serling. Congressman Dan Kildee. Alexander Zondrick. Actor, comedian Joe Napote. Woodrow Stanley. U.S. Senator Debbie Stabenow. State Senator Jim Ananick. Comedian Brian McCree. The unknown comic. Mark Farner. And Tom, I want you to know Tom's my friend. You, you've always got great questions, and you know the material, and you, and you care about it, and it's, uh, it's that's impressive. Nice to be with you, Tom. And I admire you for reading all of that. I haven't read the whole thing. I've got willing to admit that. <laughs> hey, Tom, this is my favorite interview all It's like having coffee at the kitchen table with you. Tune in Monday through Friday from 9 to 12 right here on 92.1 of a Kind. And check out our website at TomSumnerProgram.com. MTA Flint is nationally recognized for continually seeking to provide sustainable, reliable, and cost-efficient transportation for individuals throughout the region. Through work-related and non-emergency medical transportation and your ride services, MTA is moving people with future and alternative fuel technologies. More information about MTA Flint and specialized services is available at mtaflint.org. Discoveries. They happen when we least expect them in places we thought we knew. And discoveries have a way of teaching us a little more about ourselves along the way. Welcome to Flint and Genesee County, where up north meets down south. Home to Michigan's largest county park system and a vibrant culture. A place filled with discoveries we've yet to make. Throughout acres of beautiful lakes, wetlands, and woods, and in the diverse city beyond. Where the uplifting melodies of gospel choirs fill the air where the work of renowned artists color the galleries and museums, where the fresh fruits and vegetables at the downtown farmer's market awaken our senses, and where the cultural center and planetarium broaden our view of the world. Let's spend a few days enjoying the wonders of Flint and Genesee County, where the joy of discovery is pure Michigan. Your trip begins at michigan.org.
from Alicia, Elena, Gabriella, Erica, and the Tom Sumner Program. This is Congressman Dan Kildee, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Hey, welcome back, everybody. We continue our conversation about uh, skills and information that students, uh, that diverse learners need to uh, be successful in college, as outlined in a book called Taking Flight by my guest, Perry LaRock, who joins me by phone. Perry, welcome back. Thanks for sticking around, and sorry to make you sit through all this. Yeah, you bet. Um, no, yeah, absolutely. Perry, I, I'm not sure exactly where we left off, but something that occurred to me uh, from a, a interview I did recently, we have a state's, uh, state Supreme Court justice who is blind, and we were talking about his education and the fact that he came from a very well-established and pretty wealthy family. and And I got wondering about... If you talked about it being somewhat on the students more than the colleges to um, do what they need to do to be successful, and I wondered about the economics of that. Is it is it expensive yeah. to do the things that diverse learners need to do to make sure they're getting the most out of their college experience? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so... Um the answer to that is yes. And um, just just to finish that thought before the break, I, the question had been, um, what's the impact on other students? And right, I'll, I'll right. sum it up in a nutshell. Uh, lots of different research has suggested it actually improves other students' experiences. Um, and and the, I'll tell you one of the funniest results I've seen is that um, <clears throat> when a student with a disability is in a college course, that generally uh, that college professor's rating goes up. And if you look into that a little bit more, generally a college professor who knows that they have a student with a disability in the course um, will probably prepare in a way that um, they're presenting the material either more slowly or more succinctly or they're providing more examples, which in the long run benefits all the students in the course. And so we actually know that this new generation of students actually is starting to view disability as diversity, and so it's not uncommon for them to have other students with various disabilities throughout their course. And so it's certainly not the students that have a problem with it. It's generally more of the colleges accommodating it that, that we run into some roadblocks. Um, but, yeah, around economics, I mean, there really is no support po you know, post-high school. Um, colleges have a lot of amazing services, I mean, and I outlined all, all of those in the book, and I say that it's sort of like a buffet, though, you know, you've got a student, you're going to drop them off, and they're going to have to figure out what to eat. And the difficulty is that if you have a disability or you're a student who's not good at advocating for yourself, knowing what, which of those services are um, going to help you the most and knowing where they are and knowing how to use them is going to be the challenge. And so colleges have writing centers and math labs and tutoring and um, office hours and counseling services. I mean, they, they've got a whole host of these different services just again, the student has gone from being a member of an IEP team where someone is sort of pulling all the different levers to being dropped off in, in college where now they're, they're the captain of their own domain. And so they've got to figure out when they're struggling and where to go um, to use it. So colleges do have the services. 
it's just, you know, uh, the problem is, is that as you get a student with more and more, um, you know, challenges, then you're going to have to start layering some services that a college might not have, like more explicit coaching. At Mansfield Hall, for example, we provide speech and language services, and we provide, um, you know, coaching and academic services and internship support and vocational experiences. We, you know, we provide um, coaching down to the level of helping students organize their, their days. And, you know, we're working with students primarily on the autism spectrum. Um, and there, there's no funding for that you know, no government funding. And so generally students who have more, you know, needs going to college who are going to need to find where that support is, that's going to come out of their own pocket. There's not really any grants or scholarships um, that they can apply for. There's some, net, you know, government programs. They have disability services on campus. But again, um, you know, without singling out any major university, I would tell you that the average caseload um, you know, a good caseload, let's call it, at a major university for a disability services um, coordinator is over 150 students. And so you're not going to get the level of support that, that you need if you have some challenges that are going to go beyond that amount of time that you're going to get from that person. You know, Perry, I want to go back to the, the question about the impact on other students because you said something um, that, that brought out the devil's advocate in me uh, about, sure. the, about a, uh, a college instructor um, changing his presentation a little bit to make it a little slower or a little easier to comprehend. And, and a devil's advocate might say, well, isn't that scaling back the potential achievement of everyone? Yeah, no, that's, thank you for bringing that up. No, um, you know, if it's done right, it should be scaling up the achievement for everybody. So there's a great, um, uh, you know, sort of methodology um, paradigm, let's call it, called universal design for learning. Um, I've done a lot of trainings on it, at, you know, at different colleges. The, the simple premise behind universal design for learning is, how do we increase the access to a curriculum? And so you can take the most difficult concept. I mean, let's take Stephen Hawking's, for example, right? The Stephen Hawking's is uh, obviously a genius, was a genius. But what a lot of us educators view him as being the most genius for is his ability to actually explain these unbelievably difficult you know, concepts. I mean, he can teach at Oxford and enlighten brilliant minds, but for the average reader to pick up a book from Barnes and Nobles that Stephen Hawking wrote and understand, or at least have a brief understanding of, of string theory, really is what made him, you know, just phenomenal is being able to explain those concepts. So the mentality for a professor isn't how do I make this, this course easier. The question is how do I make my, this material more accessible? And so there's a variety of different ways that you can do that. And that's by just increasing the amount of access to that curriculum, whether it's providing multiple formats of, of representing the information or multiple ways of comprehending it or assessing that information in a, multiple, a multitude of ways um, so that we're really um, focused on those students learning. And that, that spans beyond just disability. I mean, if you want to, I mean, the Universal Design for Learning, you know, was created in the, in the spirit of improving, uh, you know, education for students with disabilities. But really the goal is to improve the education for all students. I mean, think back on your own college experience, the number of professors where you just, they, it just their instruction was a waste of time almost. Um, the course was so difficult to understand uh, that it was, um, 
that it was almost a waste of time for you to be there. So rather than that material, that material is hard because of the way it was being presented, not hard because someone uh, didn't present it in a way that you could understand and help you with it more. And so that's really the focus is how do we make education focused on a student's learning and make it accessible for everybody, which also should be enhancing that education for students who are ready to move on to more difficult concepts and um, provide ways for students who are struggling to have more opportunities to learn it. How much of college is um, acquiring uh, information, specific facts and data, and how much of it is about acquiring the skills to go on to be a lifelong learner? Oh, I think, yeah. Uh, so um, this is what the book is really about. And, and I think that w the, the most reviews on, on Taking Flight I've gotten were, why is this book geared just to students who are diverse learners? This should be for everybody. Because the first thing that we tackle here is that, you know, I, I give this example. When I, when I speak to parent groups, um, you know, people who are interested in going to college, I ask a question, um, you know, I have them write it down, which is always kind of fun. What's the most important thing you learned in college? I have never once, and I've talked to hundreds of parents, I've never once got anybody to write anything down about curriculum or academics. It's always about, I learned how to love learning. I learned how to, um, you know, uh, have a broader perspective. I've learned how to have good relationships. I've learned how to work with other people. I've learned how to collaborate. I mean, all of these skills that aren't explicitly taught in, you know, I never got anyone to say anything about biology, for example. And, and so the idea is that a, a successful college experience is not just the academic piece. A successful college experience is how do you prepare yourself to be a thriving, independent person who is seeking a meaningful career. And, and that involves doing a lot more than just doing well in school. That is about expanding your ability to be engaged on campus, whether it's you know getting involved in civic engagement or volunteering or clubs or arts or... Um, you know, internships, all these different pieces are, are really sort of the, the skill set that creates you to be, um, you know, successful in life. And, you know, I think that we take it for granted as, as non, you know, as, as non-disabled or traditional students, that those things come naturally, that I'm going to be able to go into a, a roommate relationship and learn those skills implicitly. The difference is that some students need to think about how to de develop those skills more explicitly. And so how do I um, develop good r roommate relationships or how do I start to develop a good work-life balance and how do I and manage those different pieces? And so I, I, I completely agree that the, although we think of college as being classes, college is actually a much broader experience than that. And if we don't focus on um, that work-life balance, and, and when I say work-life balance, I'm not talking about just, you know, not partying too much. I'm talking about some students who need to party a little bit more um, because they're not getting out there and getting the social experience or they are starting to struggle in class because they're not having the friendships that they need to support them, uh, their mental health. Have you, has, I, I'm not sure exactly how to set this up, but have you been able to get feedback about the book from students that are diverse learners and and having the college experience, or has it been out long enough for that? Well, it's only you know actually um, 
uh, one of the most interesting facts about my book is that um, the it was released on March 17, 2019. <laughs> I see the 2020. Um, so I got I you know I, the luck of the draw there was just wonderful. I woke up in the morning thinking great book release day, and then I got the news that the whole country just shut down. <laughs> so so um, you got it, you got twenty twentyed. Oh yeah, yeah. So it was great. So uh, you know, add the you know, subtract the pandemic year, and it's only been out for a few months. Um, yeah, but I, I did have I had m- many different um, diverse learners read the book prior to to publishing it. Um, and what's been interesting is I've had a lot of professionals read it, and I've had a lot of just parents read it as well. Um, and and it does. Um, I, I think for the for my worry was that some people would look at this and say, well, this is all just common sense. Um, the reality of it is, is that I was a professor for seven years. And so knowing about these hidden rules of college, um, which I talk a lot about in the book, like some people just aren't aware of them. Take first generation college students. I mean, I'm able to give, um, you know, I, I came from a family whose parents went to college and so I, they passed on, you know, Oh, he said no extra time on, on that assignment. You got to ask them directly. Okay. So I emailed the professor. Yeah, I ran into some problems this week, and can I have a couple more days? I know your syllabus says no extra time. And they write back and say, yeah, no problem, right? Someone who's never been to college looks at that policy and says, well, I can't ask for an exception here. I'm just not going to turn it in. You know, so there are those pieces here where just guiding someone just even through the structure of college. I mean, I, I realized this early on in talking. I started talking about, well, you know, if you go to the department chair or the dean, and people are looking at you like, what do you mean by department chair or dean? I mean, people don't even understand the structure of a college. It's completely different than a high school. And so knowing that background and knowing where to go to get that support or where to advocate, I mean, just knowing those pieces right off the bat when you start college is, is just incredibly important. I mean, the other, the other thing is that think about high school in some ways, it's a teacher's job to develop a relationship with their students in class. In college, it's not necessarily the professor's job to develop a relationship with their students. It's your job to develop a relationship with the professor, and that relationship can be incredibly important when it comes down to getting some of that extra time or being able to talk about results on a paper. Um, sort of, I call it the benefit of the doubt points at the end of the semester to get you from that, you know, C plus to the B minus. Um, you know, those are just really important things to do in college that a lot of us just did. Now, if you're a student who's a diverse, diverse learner, non-traditional students, not knowing those things puts you at a significant disadvantage when you're going to college. Is there um, a, a, a profile or um, a, 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 an aptitude assessment that determines whether college is the right choice for diverse learners? Well, no. I mean, we, we've, at Mansfield Hall, we developed a, um, and people can shoot, shoot me an email if they got any academics or programs out there that want, to, want some more information about it. But we, we actually created a adaptive behavior scale specifically to, to evaluate readiness of, of college students that we use and some other programs that we allow to use it that sort of looks at all of these different skills that we believe are important to be successful in college. But let's just, you know, look at um, how we, you know, we, we look for students who are college capable at Mansfield Hall. And that's sort of a, a fluffy term because college capable 
is yeah, what an evaluation. Yeah, what does a, that a, mean, Perry? That's, that's, yeah. that's really at the heart of the question I'm asking is, yeah. are, are there, right. are there <laughs> diverse learners that are college capable and some that aren't? Yeah, um, yes, and it's really hard to figure out the difference. Let's put it that <laughs> way. I would say, uh, <laughs> I would say that um, desire is probably motivation is probably what I think is the most important piece. Um, someone who's really motivated to be in college, I, I think, could find a pathway. And in the book, for example, I talked that there are a lot of different pathways to college. And that goes all the way from those experiential programs I was talking about to taking a couple courses at a time at a community college over a few years or doing online learning. I mean, there's a lot of different options. It's not just the University of Wisconsin. Um, and so I think that that's the first you know, important to say is that if you're really motivated to get a college degree, it doesn't have to be 15 credits per semester at a major university. There, there's different ways of doing that. So desire, motivation, I think is incredibly important. I think um, probably looking at how students did in high school is an important piece. I don't think SATs and ACTs are a very good predictor of how people are going to do in college. Um, and I, I say the reason, going back to it's hard to figure out, is that at Mansfield Hall, we have seen students who on paper look like they should be, you know, the next famous neuroscientist who gets to college and completely freeze and don't do well. And we've had students who we think, oh, maybe they, they could only earn an associate's degree, maybe, you know, but let's work with them, who step up to the challenge and they just thrive in the environment and they totally blow our expectations out of the water. And so, you know, there's certainly no reason in trying. And, and I, I hate to say it this way, Tom, the best predictor of how well you do in college is trying it. And there's no reason why a student can't start and take a couple courses at a community college to give it a whirl and see how they're doing and, um, and, and adjust as they move along. Um, we start students sometimes in community colleges and then they'll graduate from like the University of Vermont. I mean, we have programs at University of Vermont, Burlington, Vermont, Madison, Wisconsin, and Eugene, Oregon. So we have options from community colleges all the way up to the you know University of Oregon, University of Vermont, University of Wisconsin. And we've seen students go in both directions, start at the major university and end up with an associate's degree. And we've seen students who just say, you know, I'm just kind of college curious, take a couple of courses, and next thing you know, they're on track to get a full four-year bachelor's degree. I, I want to ask... Um uh, again, this gets back to expenses. Are there expenses that diverse learners have that traditional students don't? Yes. Yeah. I mean, one of the one of the recommendations. <clears throat> colleges do a lot of um, tutoring, and there's a big difference between tutoring and coaching. And so I'm going to talk about just just like a really simple expense that every diverse learner could benefit from. All, I mean, all people could benefit from generally. Um, and that's just coaching. And so tutoring would be, how do you do this math assignment? Coaching would be, how do we structure our time to be successful in this course? And coaching, um, you know, in, in, you can think of, you know, I think us as professionals have opportunities to have life coaching where we try to balance our lives and our work schedules and all these different pieces. But that coaching at a college level is so important. I mean, you've you got to think about, Students who are used to showing up at 8 in the morning in high school and then having everything scheduled out for the whole day to a student who has courses that are Tuesday, Thursday afternoons, Monday, Wednesday mornings, you know, a lab at Wednesday at 3. I mean, it's just all over the place. 
and then they're left at night of figuring out how do I manage all of these different schedules and time and where do I fit in my basketball intramural practice and where do I fit in, you know, hanging out with my friends and how do I get to the counseling services? Having someone just sort of figure that out with them is important. I mean, but coaching just, you know, let's say the average cost of coaching by the hour is 75 to $150 an hour and colleges don't generally provide it. So just that initial expense for someone who needs that extra support around managing their college life is going to cost them 300 to thousands of dollars a month just to help them with that piece that colleges don't provide. So yeah, absolutely. Those, those services uh, can go much more expensive for a student. Uh, my guest is uh, Perry LaRock. He is the author of Taking Flight that talks about the skills and information diverse learners need to be successful in college. Um, Perry, we just have a couple of minutes left, and I, I want to thank you for spending this time with me and the listeners this morning. But I always give guests an opportunity to let listeners know where they can find out more about you and your work, past, present, and future. Do you have a website? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, you can, my website's at perrylarock.com and that's P-E-R-R-Y-L-A-R-O-Q-U-E.com. Um, and that's got information about the book. It's got some, um, videos and content and blogs. Um, it also has a link to my uh, podcast. Um, we did a podcast called Taking Flight where I was able to interview, um, people with disabilities and kind of talk about their experience in life, including, uh, Dr. Temple Grandin. Um, and sort of heard her um, journey through through life and her disability. And, and I'll just give you a little preview. I thought the most one of the most interesting thing I heard in all these interviews was um, Dr. Grandin um, uh, said that um, being a woman uh, in her career was more challenging than having autism, uh, which I just still today that sticks with me heavily. Um, you can also check out mansfieldhall.org um, so for more information about the Mansfield Hall programs. Um, and, um, you know, uh, there's a lot of information uh, on that website as well, and you can links back to mine as, as well. Well, Perry, thank you so much for spending this time uh, sharing your expertise with me and the listeners. And uh, uh, I, I guess just thanks and keep up the good work. Yeah, thank you so much, Tom. This has been a really great conversation. I, I appreciate your time. All right, take care. Yep, bye-bye. Bye. Once again, uh, Perry LaRock is the uh, founder and president of Mansfield Hall, an innovative residential college support program for diverse learners. And his uh, book, Taking Flight, is uh, about the skills and information needed to be successful in college for diverse learners. Anyway, if you're listening to us on WFOV 92.1 LPFM, our voices radio in Flint, they are a broadcast service of the Flint Odyssey House Spectacle Productions and my friend Paul Herring. Uh, we're going to let them squeeze a few words in or do whatever they do when we when we go to break. If you're uh, streaming us at TomSumnerProgram.com, we have some messages as well, so don't touch that dial, don't click that mouse. More of the Tom Sumner program is straight ahead. We're going to talk a little bit about uh, active shooter preparation coming up next.
Hi, this is Joe By from the Blue Hawaiians, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. While we've been staying safe at home, scientists have been on a journey. The destination, a COVID-19 vaccine. This journey began decades ago with research into other coronaviruses. Scientists built from there with months of research and development, cooperation with other experts worldwide, and clinical trials on tens of thousands of volunteers of diverse race, age, and health status. They arrived at a safe, effective vaccine, and hundreds of thousands in Michigan have already been vaccinated. But the next step is ours. We need to get the vaccine when we can, keep wearing masks correctly, and taking precautions until we reach our destination, freedom from COVID-19, and getting back to the lives we love. Discover the facts for yourself at michigan.gov slash COVID vaccine. A message from the Michigan Department of Health and Human Services. Start your weekend early with the Tom Sumner Program every Friday live at 11. We turn the spotlight on the world of arts and entertainment featuring artists from music, TV, and the movies. Catch everything from the rich local talent pool in and around Flint and Genesee County to up-and-coming stars of stage and screen, plus legends from New York and Hollywood. Hi, this is Greg Nagy. Hey, this is Hoppa. Hi, this is Joe By from the Blue Lions. Hi, this is Alexander Zonjic. Hi, this is Mark Farner. This is Maurice Davis. Hi, this is... This is Rochelle Ray. Hi there, folks. This is Sweet Willie T. Hey, this is Steve from the Nashville office. I'm Gwen Pennyman Hemphill. Start your weekend right. Go to 11 Fridays on the Tom Sumner Program. Those hands, no matter whose they are, can spread the germs of many common diseases. That's why I want you to realize how important it is to keep hands clean, to wash them regularly and always before meals with Life Boy, which not only removes dirt, but helps to remove germs. Teach the children this habit. Form it yourself. Always use Life Boy for hands and face as well as the bath. America, your children have an amazing superpower. That's right. They can help save lives by simply washing their hands. Just 20 seconds of thorough hand washing after they've coughed or sneezed or been outside can help fight against the dastardly spread of germs. Armed with only soap and water and hands, your superhero can protect you, your family, and everyone out there in America land. Amazing! Find out more at coronavirus.gov. A message from the CDC and the Ad Council. Imagine a journey down a picturesque river. Imagine your Flint River, 142 miles of recreation, natural beauty, and precious resources. The Flint River is a vital resource that is available for all to use and enjoy. The river and its ecosystem provide unlimited recreational opportunities and natural beauty while supporting wildlife in a vibrant landscape. We all have a responsibility to protect and preserve this precious resource. Learn more at FlintRiver.org or call the Flint River Watershed Coalition at 810-767-6490. 
TheTomSumnerProgram.com Hey, this is First Ward City Councilman Eric Mays, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Hey, welcome back, everybody. This is the Tom Sumner Program, and uh, my my g- next guest is um, a. Uh, let me let me turn the page here so I make sure and get this correct he is the director of training at safe defend and uh, that's a a company designed to uh, help schools and businesses and and, in public buildings and malls and everything else uh, prepare themselves and and train for uh, active shooter incidents and I thought it might be interesting to have a conversation with an expert in the field in the wake of uh, this week's shooting at Oxford High School just down the road from where our show is based, where a 15-year-old Oxford High School sophomore shot 11 people, leaving three students dead and eight people injured. Um, and and we're going to talk about that case and probably some others with, uh, with my guest, who... Um, is Doug Parisi, and he joins me by phone. Hi, Doug. Welcome to the show. Well, thank you, Tom. Thank you for having me on, and I appreciate the opportunity to speak with you and your audience about this um, unfortunate atrocity. You you must always get invited to talk about, like, to come on radio shows when something really horrible has happened. <laughs> yeah, fortunately, um I mean, just a little bit on my uh, sort of pedigree. Um, when I was 13 years old in 1983, the school district that I was at um, had a school shooting. It was Parkway Central Junior High. Sorry, Parkway South Junior High um, in St. Louis, and I was at Parkway Central at the time. But uh, in the aftermath of it, I, you know, I learned a little, a couple things, and it was a conversation I had when I was 13 years old with my parents and with, with other students and with staff. And then um, when I was in law enforcement, I had the opportunity to... Uh, um, respond on a workplace shooting that was live and active. It was an active shooter situation. I was out there, and then um, I did an after um, uh, after action report on one of the uh, workplace shootings, Conagra, in Kansas City, Kansas, as well. And now you're with Safe Defend, and and Safe Defend is is based just outside of Kansas City. Um, is who are your clients? I would tell you primarily it is schools because that seems to be where this, the, you know, there's, there's a focus, unfortunately, on these. Um, there's been an uptick in these over decades. Um, it's a steady increase, which is unfortunate. Um, and so what we're looking for schools to be able to do is to make sure that they're properly preparing themselves for this. Um, what we need to do is focus more on what has happened in the past and what we can do to thwart these types of events and not not about necessarily just doing the same thing over and over and hoping that somehow it's going to work differently this time. And so well, things things change dramatically in terms of the way law enforcement responds in the wake of Columbine. Oh yeah, there was no doubt. I was in, you know that was I was in the infancies of my law enforcement career when that happened, and, it, and we definitely went through some training and stuff like that. One of the things I can tell you, and I guess I'll just use this example, is in the, in when my district had when I was growing up had the shooting. One of the things that they um, started locking all the doors, the exterior doors, they put in a sort of gauntlet at the front of the school, so you had to go to the front office. They put in cameras. 
they put in two-way radios, and then they put a school resource officer in every building. And when you look at the recommendations after, you know, um, uh, Sandy Hook, it was the same recommendation. So we kept doing the same sort of thing. And what we're not understanding is there are certain things that work for active shooter things, uh, shooter situations, and certain things that don't. Cameras is the best example. People think that surveillance is going to help in an active shooter situation, but when you actually look at some of the manifestos of some of these shooters, you mentioned Columbine, they said, hey, the world doesn't know who we are today, but tomorrow everyone's going to know what we did. And that what they were implying was they wanted to be on camera. And so the problem in these types of situations, and let's, like when we look at Oxford, they had an extensive surveillance system. The, sh the sheriff even said that. And it didn't thwart the attack. It didn't stop the attack. And it really didn't help the law enforcement response because nobody had tapped into the system yet to even locate the shooter. It was the officers were, um, you know, that the incident happened, about, I think about 1250 is what's being reported. And then 1251, the first 911 calls came in, and officers had the suspect in custody about four minutes later, around 1255. But none of that had anything to do with surveillance cameras. Active, uh, um, yeah, I think a lot of people think if they put surveillance camera, they're going to see somebody standing there in the hallway loading a gun, and they're going to have all kinds of time to respond. And that's not what happens. Correct. You're that's lucky. Exactly right. okay. you're, if you're lucky, you, you get video of the person shooting. There's something we always say kind of, you know, tongue-in-cheek in law enforcement is that videos are good for two things, training and prosecution. Because by the time you can access the camera, figure out what time it's going on and, and all this other stuff and figure it out. The other difficulty is, let's say that they're in one hallway and they leave that hallway and they go to the next hallway. You have to be um, familiar enough with the system to understand that they just went from camera 15 to camera 28 or northeast corridor to, you know, northeast, you know, main entrance, stuff like that. And so with, unless you really know that surveillance system backwards and forwards, you're not going to be able to track the movements of the shooter throughout the building, and it leads to a lot of confusion when you uh, see something. The other thing, too, is, is that as we saw in this, there was a lot of students that were exiting the building once the shooting started, so pretty much the cameras would show you things like kids running everywhere, and you're like, well, which one has the gun? You know? And so those are the types of things that make it very difficult um, to, to rely on that for an extra shooter situation. Now, there was there was one case, and it looks like, I, I think, when we know more about what happened at Oxford, and it gets reviewed, and in, in, uh, um, some of the questions get answered, I, I think we're going to find that the system worked pretty well and minimized loss of life. Um, and there was there was one example that I thought was really interesting, Doug, that I wanted you to comment on. There was a classroom that went on lockdown, you know, according to the system that was in place. And then someone knocked on the door and said, I'm a deputy. Come with me, bro. And yeah, so that's a great thing that you bring up. Real quick, um, Tom, I just want your audience to know. You and I are both having a conversation on limited information, you know, that we... Yeah, exactly. So I want people to hear this, if you're hearing this later, understand that, you know, there could be something coming out right now that we're, we're misspeaking because we don't have full information. But what you speak to is very important. Um, you're referring to it as a system, and I would tell you it's really more training. That, you know, like training is what really carried the day in um, Oxford. Um, the law enforcement training, the staff, all exemplary. They got their, they got their students safely um, protected behind classroom doors. They got that building on lockdown pretty quickly. Um, and so you're right. The training definitely kicked in and saved lives. Yeah, yeah. That's uh, and I'm glad you made that that clarification for me, 
Doug. But I was so impressed with these kids that they picked up on that a, a deputy that was going to escort them to safety would probably not have said bro. Right. And and that's one of the key things. You know, Some of the training we go in and make sure that schools, when they're doing this, and when we do, we, we go in, we don't just put our notification system in place. We also do some training as what to do once the system's been activated, what are the best practices, what are your choices, do you run, do you fight, or, you know, do you barricade? Um, just so, uh, just so you, uh, you and your audience know that there was a study out of Idaho that just came out a couple weeks ago, and it pretty much says the safest place for students in an active shooter situation is uh, barricaded behind a locked, secure door, lights out with you know um, furniture in front of the door. So that's a wonderful thing that, that those students were able to accomplish. Understand that doesn't always work. And uh, the example I can give you, if you've ever seen some of these modern schools, they have a really nice science lab and has big windows across the whole thing. And that enables you know students walking down the hallway to see what's going on in that classroom. Well, you, you or I couldn't barricade in that classroom, right? Someone can just break the window and access it. So that's the type of thing where if I was in a classroom like that, I'd probably have to leave that classroom, find a closet, or exit the building, or find another room to barricade in. But so when we say barricading is the best option, that's if you can do so safely, right? But if there's big windows or easy access or doors that won't shut or something like that then barricading in those rooms, like the cafeteria. You can't barricade in a cafeteria. You've got to get through in the kitchen area, the pantry, or exit the area in order to barricade. Because these kinds of school shootings are sadly fairly frequent, is it having an effect on the design of the buildings themselves? And and do you at uh, Safe Defend get... uh, uh, consulted about some of those things? Actually, it's funny. Yes, we do. Um, I, we go to architectural lectures and we've done some lunch and learns with architectural firms. Yes, the active shooter type situations do affect the, the construction, but it's all a give and a take and it's a balance. Um, you did mention something, and I just want you to understand something. There's 144,000 schools in the United States, and these types of situations happen in about 15 to 20 per year. Um, so the probability that something like this happens is extremely low. We, though, train and prepare for the, the possibility, and so that's what, that's what we're discussing here. Um, I do want to jump back because I think I jumped over your question about knocking on the door. It was great that the students recognized that, but what I want people to understand is normally the, 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 you will not release your barricade for a long time. And when I say that, I mean at least 30 minutes while law enforcement gets there, stabilizes the situations, evacuates any wounded and prepares for which direction people are going. They also need to search the school to make sure there aren't any explosive devices or anything left behind. So they need to make sure that they have safe egress passes, um, you know, passages for the students. So students should recognize, and this should be told to them, nobody's going to come evacuate you very quickly. But if somebody's ever knocking on the door and they're identifying themselves as a police officer, don't expose yourself to the window necessarily. What the best thing to do is probably just to call dispatch, call 911 and say, hey, I have an officer, I'm in room... 220 at the high school. Um, I have an officer out here. Um, I'm going to give you a code word, and then you tell the officer to say that word to me. And so if I say something like Jabberwocky to the the dispatcher, and she repeats that over the radio, and then the officer says it to me, I know that that's an actual officer. More about active shooter planning and response with Doug Parisi from Safe Defend is coming up a little later in the show. (laughs) 
pilots, get off of my lawn. We're trying to do a radio show down here. It's a Tom Sumner program, don't you know? Go on. Go on, get out of here. <laughs>